The first will come last, Jesus said. Growing up, I had the incredible gift of being educated by some of the most wonderful, dedicated women, black women, just incredible, dedicated women. And now I know that public school, in many people's minds, especially the DC public schools where I went, the people think, oh, you know, they're not great. But these were great educators. So don't listen to reputation. And these women defied whatever expectations that broader culture might have had of what they might be able to do. And part of how they became such great educators was just that they loved us. Because yes, they were brilliant, but they loved my classmates and they loved me. Even when we acted up, even when some of us brought in whatever problems may have been happening in the outside of the classroom into the classroom. And these classrooms were overstuffed with students, but they loved us and they managed us. And so just as a little shout out, I wanna shout out Ms. Delorum and Ms. Freeman and Ms. Howell and Ms. Judge and Ms. Knight and Ms. Ellis. Those are my teachers, first through sixth grade. Our principal, Ms. Greer, these were great women and I wanna thank them. One of my classmates, who is now the Dr. Constance Lindsay, does a lot of research on education and especially the achievement gap amongst children, particularly along racial lines, and building off of the well-established research that teaches us that children's academic success can be measured by their performance around the fourth grade. In other words, you can test a child's reading skills in the fourth grade and understand pretty well. You can predict how well they're gonna do in high school, whether or not they're gonna go to college, how much money they're gonna earn, all that pretty much is established by the fourth grade, which is stunning and serious and crucial data. So Dr. Lindsay and her colleagues have done some beautiful research on the why behind all of this, especially the why of how this becomes stark and true for black children. And here's what she's published. There's a direct correlation between who teaches our children and how well they perform. And to be a bit more scientific about this, a racial or ethnic match between the child and at least one of their teachers has a predictive effect on a number of things. Now, why am I talking about any of this in the sermon? The other day, right here in the sanctuary, we had another moment in our growing collaboration with the largest African-American family organization in America. It's called Jack and Jill. And it holds a special place in my heart because my grandmother, my Nana, Mae Frances Bailey, was part of the movement that began the organization in the first place in the pre-civil rights years. And in the context of church, Nana was just very faithful. She was the first lady of Dixwell Avenue Congregational Church, United Church of Christ in New Haven, uh, Connecticut. And Nana was the person who, when I was finishing elementary school, encouraged me and my first cousin Talia to work with our grandfather to prepare for Christian baptism. And he did baptize us and he 
was and is deeply influential in my ministry. You hear me talk about him all the time. This week, I'm not talking about him. I'm going to talk about her. So, as I think about this illustration of faithfulness, if you walk the streets of New Haven, particularly amongst folks of a certain age, you're going to meet countless people who will have incredible things to say about Mae Francis. Some because of her ministry at Dixwell Church, but most because that ministry spilled out into her work as one of the main reading specialists in the New Haven public school system. And I can't tell you how many people I've run into who love to offer testimony about how my Nana, Mrs. Edmonds, taught them to read. And it wasn't just that she taught them this critical skill. What stuck most with them was that she stuck with them. Nana would never give up on them. She studied and she learned techniques to maneuver through the many ways that children learn. She would never write them off like so many other people did. She would work with them to figure out how to get them this critical skill so that their lives could get where they needed to go. And while she did this, she affirmed her deep faith and her deep belief in the inherent dignity and worth of these children. Nana may not have seen the research about fourth graders or their correlation between their current and future success. What she did know from the roots of her soul was this. If she gave up on the children, if she didn't work with these children of God and see that even though the system would, here's how it's coming back, even though the system would put them last, if she herself didn't put them first, then the world would last them for the rest of their lives. Last, I know, is not technically a verb, but it is a phenomenon worth noting, especially in church. So I'm going to use it as a verb today. Systems, patriarchy, supremacy, capitalism, fascist regimes, dictatorships, other regimes of inequality, they all thrive by means of the verb of last which I imagine we all know, as did Jesus, who wanted no part of it. By his measure, the first comes last. So it's interesting. In our passage from Matthew 19, Jesus says all of this in response to his disciple Peter's very interesting question. I don't know if you noticed it. And you could argue that Peter was almost like the first disciple in terms of his importance. But anyway, Peter is basically like, okay, dude, we've given up everything for you. What are you going to do for us? What will we get in return? What's it going to be like for us in heaven? Or as the text says, what then will we have? And in response to Peter's question of basically like what's in it for us, Jesus does give some promises to those who have left everything to follow him. But those promises of better things are to, come, are to be accompanied by a warning. The good things that we seek won't follow the regular social order. Last will be first, and first will be last. Don't expect the norms that could come 
across as a promise, which it is, but it is also a warning and a mandate. And I'm going to let you in on what may be a little bit of a secret. When Jesus talks about how things are going to be, how things will be, he actually wants them to be like that now. It's not something he's like, oh, I wish one day. He's like, no, this is how it should be right now. And so he wants us to know that if we follow what he's saying, then that is a way to please God. And we can make things function in a way that comports with God's vision for humanity by thinking of how we put the last first. This is God's vision for humanity. And he's giving us an incredibly clear and challenging roadmap to the experience of heaven on earth. And here's a way to understand this in more stark terms. If one has and the other has not, that's not God's will. If one has at the expense of another, that's not God's will. If for you to get, someone else has to suffer, that's not God's will. Capitalism may depend on that. Capitalism teaches that the first should be first and deserves to be first and must be first. It may be our economy, but it isn't God's. It's clear on that because the first actually comes last. And if the first shall come last and the last shall come first and what we know shall not be what is to come, then what do we do about it? I think we take a step back and we evaluate who we put last. Who is coming last? We set aside the isms like our racisms and classisms and sexism and ableism and all the other isms that allow us even subconsciously to justify why someone deserves their failing grade. Beloved, whenever and every time you rationalize why someone should be last, that impulse is one to check, because it's decidedly not of God. The last shall come first. Now, I'll admit that in so many ways, I myself am a first. I know that. I have to admit my own privilege here. The thing is, though, that when we sign on to last being first, we have to do it with intention. We don't just get to drop the first in the lion's den and say, dance first, dance, make magic, create out of thin air, perform. To make a last first, it means that we have to do more, affirmatively to do more to, than just make room for them. It means that we have to do everything that we can to make firsthood sustainable, which isn't a passive act. It means giving up some things probably a lot, which means investing our time to build new pathways that haven't existed for the lasts before, which means submitting to God's economy and not ours. Accountability is deeply important, of course, but if we take a last, make them first, 
pat ourselves on the back for it without asking the deep questions of how we make firsthood sustainable, then we have to ask, was it just an act or have we been invested in God's economy? Are we just continuing to mainstream? Why is it that a black child has the best chance of succeeding if she has a black teacher? Why is it that an ESL student, which is English as a second language, an ESL child has the best chance of learning English when they work with people who speak their own language, who are native speakers of their own language. It's more than mechanics. And I think this is why Jesus brings us this challenging mandate in the first place. It's because he knows us. He knows how we are. And he knows that we hold so tightly to what we have that we're willing to last another just so that they will stay there at the expense of the people who were last and children so often come last. And that's unacceptable. In God's realm, it's unacceptable. And I would be shirking my duty if I let anyone, including any of us, continue that practice without calling it out. We just can't do it. But we do. You and I do. I admit it. And I can guarantee that there's an example in each of our lives in which we are lasting someone in a way that God would not intend. We confess for that. Within systems, we tend to succeed when there are those in power who are in invested in our firstness. And I believe that's the spirit behind the statistics. There will be people who will say you matter, and then there will be those who will make sure that you matter. Not once, not just saying it, but forever. So far, that tends to be our own people, and that's why DEI matters so much. Malign the phrase woke as much as you want, but know that it comes from a very Christian concept, keeping awake being alert to what God would have us to see. And understand this, all of us do God's will when we make sure that firstness is true, not just for our own, though that is a start, but for every single child. Child of God, all of you, you matter. And as followers of Jesus, it's our job to make sure that your life reflects that, that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And today there are children who are dying. I don't understand it, but there are active shooters in our schools. There are kidnapped children in Gaza there are victims of war in Gaza and Israel and the West Bank and Ukraine and so many other places as wars that shouldn't be continue. There are victims of terrorism. There are victims of states. There are children living in hunger and extreme poverty. And there are children who are lasted here, there, and everywhere. But the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And for that to be true, Nothing about what holds the strongest power can stay in place. 
It's true. Jesus knew it, and we need to as well. First, power will never yield itself. It just won't. It's not going to give up its own power ever, which means that in the spaces where you and I are first powers, we have a lot of work to do, much work to do, spiritual work, kingdom work. If we are last, we must make preparation. We have to prepare ourselves to be first. It doesn't just happen. We're not going to be given it. We have to take our place, and then once we get there, we need to be ready to occupy it. But if we're first, we have to be prepared to be last, and that takes some preparation too. So what can we do? Here in the sanctuary, we're on Park Avenue. Lots of us have places in which we're first, like me, I already said. That's true for some of us, but not for all of us, of course. I think that we have to also recognize that firstness is not necessarily in totality. This is really important because we can exercise, for example, a measure of power at work, but then have no power at home or vice versa, right? There are places, power dynamics are really, really important and complex, and I just have to acknowledge that. But I also want to make it a little bit easier for you. Just take an assessment. Rather than thinking about your power as a whole, because a lot of times in that way we won't feel all that empowered, but think about it in discrete areas of influence. Where are you first? And then where are you last? And now I'm potentially going to blow your mind, because in those places where you are last, and I know there are some, what within yourself might you have to do to serve in the role of first? How prepared are you for God's call of subversion? Are you ready for that revolution? In my last places, I have a tendency to feel sorry for myself. I feel like there's nothing left to do, nothing possible, and then I get stuck. And if that is you, I just want to say, don't be stuck today. Be inspired. Know this and say it to yourself again and again. I can't be last in everything. There's something I'm first in. And if you are last, how can you be ready to be first? My prayer for you is that you have a May Francis Mrs. Edmonds, or the women who were my teachers, who I named, or someone who has invested in your firstness and not your lastness. But if you don't, that's our failure. That's what organizations like the ones this church invests in and supports the work for. And that's church's job. You need your preparation to be first, and if you're not receiving it systematically, then that's a system to resist. The church needs to resist with you, and we will. And if it's not, especially to the people I'm talking to online, move on. If the church is not invested in your firstness, know that there are other churches that will be. And if you can't find that church, then you still have the power of prayer. 
you still have the chance of living out the prayer that someone else has prayed for you. We already know that the first are not willingly going to give up their post, but we do know that God intends that switch in many, if not most, cases. So if that's the case, in places in which we are last, what are we doing to prepare? How are you getting ready for what God has in store for you? Because according to God's agenda, none of what we know will remain. What are you and God doing to be ready to subvert, invert the world? Are you ready to live God's upside down? Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this element of worship. We are so grateful that you have entrusted the park with this moment to hear music, to listen to the word of God, whatever it may be. And we just ask for your support. The park only functions with the generous donations of people like you. And 100% of your donation goes to the incredible ministries of this church, which give and give and give again. Thank you for the ways that you give in advance and for all that you might be ready to give in the future. God bless you and amen.